Okay, we're going to get started. Go ahead and grab a seat. Um, again, my name's Tom. I want to welcome you guys here this morning. Uh, tonight's going to be fun because we are uh, week two in a new series we started last week, which means it's a perfect time to be new because we're a church plant. We're a new church in a new series. So if you're new, congratulations. We're all new. It's awesome, okay? Um, but we're in this new series, week two. It's called Jesus Is. Okay, and in this series, we're going to be going through the Gospel of John, all right? And the reason that we're going through the Gospel of John is because we want Jesus to always be the center of everything that we do, okay? It's very easy um, to kind of like hear about Jesus, hear the Gospel, great, yeah, my sins are forgiven, cool, now I want to go do my thing. How do I use, how do, that sounds bad, but like how do I access or use God to then accomplish what I want to accomplish, and what we want to do is we want to flip that. We want Jesus to be the center. We want him to be not just our Savior, but our Lord, because we believe that the Bible teaches that true joy and peace is only going to be found with Jesus at the center, okay? So what we're doing is we're going through this series, and we want to put Jesus in front of us as a church for like weeks and months until we can get it ingrained in us that Jesus is the point. It's all about Jesus. The entirety of Scripture is about Jesus, Okay? So if you're with us last week, I kind of did like an intro to this series. Um, it's on the website. You can listen to it. It's all free, like in the podcast and stuff. I would encourage you to do that. I don't usually plug sermons, but I would encourage you to do that with this one because we kind of set up the framework for like this whole thing. Why are we doing this series? What's the point? And if you're with us last week, we talked about this idea that, that what you actually believe, it influences your behavior. It's sort of like the software that your body runs to live its life. It's really, really important, okay? It affects every single area of your life. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to get this show on the road here. John chapter 1. Um, I usually preach out of the ESV, so if you're not in the ESV, we'll have the words up here for you. If you're anything like me, it's so tough to follow along if you're using different translations and you're like, wait, where am I in this? This is different. Um, but yeah, while you're flipping there, uh, last month I was out of the country for, I don't know, almost two weeks. And as I was on a ministry trip, I usually take two or three of these a year where I'm going and traveling a little bit. But I was gone and I was primarily in Tunisia, which is um, northern Africa. Okay, if you like think of Italy, you know, and you draw a straight line down from Italy down south, you'd run into the coast of Tunisia. So I got to spend some time there with some, with some missionaries that we are connected with and love passionately um, in a crazy place. But I was primarily there and in Ireland, ministering in Ireland. And uh, it was a crazy trip. Usually these trips, people think that like, um, oh, it's, it's, it sounds sexy to be able to travel and ministry and stuff, but like, you're jet lagged, you hit the ground, you minister for like nine days and you get back on an airplane. So you're exhausted the whole time. But I love it. It's amazing. It's a privilege that I get to do this sometimes. But this was an extra, this is like a specifically uh, intense trip because we took nine flights in nine days. It was chaos. My body was like hating me. And those of you guys that fly relatively regularly or anytime recently, you know, when you do some of these longer flights, you're hoping that the moment you walk on that airplane, that the seat back in front of you has a screen of some sort. Because if not, you're, you know, you finish your book like hour three into the flight and then you're sitting there for another like nine hours going, what am I going to do? 
So thankfully, they had kind of the, you know, the, the movies that aren't out yet, they're, they're out of the theater, but not like released on iTunes or, or Blu-ray or DVD or whatever. So I'm cruising through this library going, okay, cool, I have 12 hours to kill. What movies am I going to watch? And I watched this movie called Murder on the Orient Express. Have anybody seen this movie? Raise your hand if you have. I want to see you. Just so you know, my preaching is totally dependent on how engaged you are. So if I fail today, it's because I have a cold and because you weren't engaged. So let me see your hand high if you've seen that movie. Okay. So you guys, if you've seen, it's a classic kind of murder mystery movie. All right. It's like the whodunit, who's the killer kind of thing. And I don't know why, but I kind of have a soft spot for movies like this because I want to figure out, I want to solve the mystery. Like before it gets revealed at the end, I want to be able to figure out this mystery. And... Um, yeah, it's funny because with those kinds of stories, if you're not play, paying very close attention to the movie, if you miss a small detail, it could throw everything off of trying to figure out this mystery, right? <clears throat> Here's the thing. Today, we're going to talk about arguably the most mysterious thing in the Bible. Today, we're going to talk about the Trinity. Okay, it's this idea, this beautiful Christian doctrine, this beautiful um, mystery, this idea of one God made up of three persons. Okay, so this isn't like polytheism. It's not like multiple gods, but there's only three, like limited to only three. It's not what it is. It's not like that one God has like three split personalities. No, it's this triune God. It's a mystery. One God made up of three persons. And as with any mystery, right, it's going to be really important. It's going to be vital for each of us this morning to pay close attention to this message, okay? But here's the thing. If you can stay with me, I know my voice sounds nasally and I'm fighting this cold. If that doesn't irritate you too much, if you can stay with me, trust me, the ending is going to pay off, okay? Quick disclaimer for you. uh, We're not going to completely solve the mystery that is the triune God in one sermon uh, for maybe 35, 40 minutes. Um, But here's the thing. If you can keep up, I'm really confident that today's going to be very helpful for all of us. Okay, so let me just say this really quick too before we jump into the scriptures. Listen, if God is greater than us, if he's like holy and infinite and our minds are not and and they're they're finite, it makes sense for him to remain somewhat of a mystery. But thankfully, we have the scriptures. We have these priceless documents where God reveals himself to us. So this morning, I think will be helpful. Let's jump in. John chapter one, before we do, I'm gonna pray for us. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your love, for your grace, for your pursuit of us. Thank you for these precious people. Uh, I thank you that each of us in this room matters to you. No matter what we think, the truest thing is that you have love and compassion in your heart for those far from you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would fill me in this moment. I want, only my, I want only your words to come out of my mouth. I want to honor my friends and my family in this room. So would you encourage us, Holy Spirit? Would you enlighten our minds and our hearts to the reality of the love of Jesus? Love you, God. Amen. Okay. So John, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 18, okay? Here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist, not the Apostle John who's responsible for this gospel. Verse 7. He, John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's some astounding truth in that verse. Let's read, keep reading verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, again John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. Okay. There is so much in, this, in these 18 verses. Like we could do two years in these 18 verses. I'm not joking around. <clears throat> There's a ton here, but this morning we're going to focus on three things. Okay. So if you are taking notes, here's the three things. We're going to talk about first, the origin of the word. Secondly, the coming of the word. And thirdly, the glorifying God. Okay. So let's jump in. The first thing, the origin of the word. So John, he begins his gospel. Again, the very first words. First three words of the, of the gospel according to John is in the beginning. The Jews who would, who would have been reading this, they would have immediately known what John was up to. Okay? John starts his gospel the same exact way the Bible starts. The book of Genesis. Genesis 1.1 starts with the same three words. In the beginning. So if I were to say to you, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, what would you think? Star Wars, Star Wars yes. And some of you were like, I have no idea. <laughs> but for those of you that have ever seen Star Wars or are interested in Star Wars, you know immediately I'm talking about Star Wars, right? That's what it would have been like for the Jews that are reading this. They would have instantly been like, Star Wars, like that makes perfect sense. In the beginning, John was bringing the reader back to the very beginning, Genesis 1.1. So let's take a look at that really quickly. Genesis chapter 1, the very first three verses of the Bible. Those three words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And listen to this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, the Bible begins with God creating the entire universe. How? By speaking it into existence. Okay? In this chapter, it continues on. 
Okay, it shares more about how, or not how, but what God created. Okay, he did more creating by speaking with his words. And it says he created land and vegetation and plants and stars, the sun, the moon, animals. Here's what I want you to do though really quickly. I want you to notice three very specific nouns in these first three verses. A noun is what? A person, a place, or a thing. Okay, I want you to, I want to zero in on three specific nouns. They're essentially three characters, okay? And they are this, God, God's word, like he's speaking, right? So you have God, God's word. Today I'm going to use the phrase God's word a lot. I'm not talking about the Bible, the scriptures at all. Okay, precursor, you guys can nod at me if you can take that into your brain and know I'm not going to be talking about the Bible when I refer to God's word. Cool? Okay. So you have God, God's word, what he said, and God's spirit. And it said that God's spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, so God, he creates all this stuff. And then we go down to verse 26 in chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. It's really important. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here's what I want you to notice. In verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image. That's plural, okay? God's describing himself as a community of persons. In Genesis chapter one, the very first chapter of the Bible. So you have God, he's describing himself as a community of three persons, and then Genesis chapter one concludes with verse 31 saying this, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God's an artist, the best artist ever. Like I've taken pride in some of the things that I've been able to create, whether it's music or photography or different, d- different things I've had the privilege of, of expressing myself by doing. But I got nothing on like a sunset, man. God's the best artist ever. So he creates, right? He creates the universe, the earth, everything on it, then man and woman. He says it's very good. I mean, think about this idea of it being very good, guys. Like there's no, there's no bad, there's, there's no evil, there's no suffering, there's no pain, nothing is wrong, nothing, it's perfect. And obviously, you know, we know the story, right? Sunday school, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they, they, they bring sin into the world, they reject God, they don't trust him, and then things are suddenly no longer perfect, and if you're anything like me, I remember, I remember wrestling with this reality, thinking that's like the most unfair thing in the world. That was their choice. They did that. Why do I have to pay the consequences of like my great, 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 great cubed, you know, grandparents? They screwed up. Why do I have to pay for it? But here's the thing. The truth is, if I, if I really am, if I'm seeing reality with a sober mind, Like, I reject and disobey God every day I have air in my lungs. And so do you. You're no different than me. If you don't believe me, let's pretend for a second that, um, you know, Mark, who's leading worship, that's my brother, by the way, I love him. Uh, Let's say his microphone had special powers, and I brought you up here, and I was like, hey, like, check it out. I want to show you guys a magic trick. 
and I hold that microphone up to, up to your brain in front of all of us. And that microphone has special powers to be able to um, kind of play over the loudspeaker the thoughts that go through your brain. And let's just say it was just the last 24 hours. How deep and dark and gross and like embarrassing would those thoughts be? You're just like me, you know, broken, sinful, fallen, selfish, gross. Like none of us would be friends anymore. <clears throat> the truth is you and I are just as guilty as Adam and Eve. We really are. So fast forward thousands of years, right, after Genesis 1, and you have the sinful acts of mankind that are just permeating everything, okay? And we fast forward, right? And we have now, we're coming up to the point where the Apostle John, who, who, who's responsible for this gospel account of Jesus, this gospel account's published, okay? It's about 2,000 years ago. And he starts his gospel account, like we talked about, within the beginning, Okay, now I want to jump back to John, okay? We just read it, but John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. This, just follow me with this, okay? In the beginning was the word, not the Bible, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, okay? John is saying that God's word is God, and is with God. He's saying that God is a community of persons. Are you seeing this? I need more, more than one voice. Yes, are we seeing this? Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so we're seeing this. We have God, God's word, and God's spirit. Okay, John is describing for us the beautiful mystery of the, tw- of the Trinity. One God made of three persons. That one God is a community of three persons. Okay, John tells us God's word, the second person of the Trinity, not only created the world, remember God said he created with his word, right? So he's saying that not only did he create, um, create the world, you know, he spoke, but God's word came to earth and became a person, and that person is his best friend, Jesus. <clears throat> now, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to think of like a close friend. Uh, me and Jason go way back, okay? He's a close friend of mine. He knows a lot of things about me. I know a lot of things about him. One of my favorite things about Jason is I could, I could, I could share things with him. <clears throat> I could be honest with him. We have a friendship. He can be honest with me. But one of the things that I'm pretty certain of is if I were to tell Jason, like, hey, man, she need to tell you something. I need to shoot you straight. You need to know I'm God. I think it would affect our friendship. I think he would be like, uh, I care about you, but I don't know how to deal with this. I mean, I think about it. Imagine if a close friend of yours told you they were God. How would you respond to that? That's an outlandish, that's an outlandish thing to say. Okay, here's my question for you. Would you be willing to die for it? You gotta understand the Apostle John. This is Jesus' closest friend, okay? <clears throat> the Apostle John Back in his time, the Romans were the superpower, right? The Roman government, they would, they would ask you, who is Lord? And if your response was anything besides Caesar is Lord, execution, like you're done. They're going to take you out, okay? <clears throat> but John, he, he was proclaiming that Jesus, his best friend, was Lord. And because of that, <clears throat> they tried to boil him in oil. 
That's crazy. I can think of a, like, a, I just, just shoot me in the back of the head. I don't even want to know. You know what I mean? Like painless, quick, easy. They were going to boil him alive in oil. So they try to boil him alive in oil and it doesn't work. But let me ask you this. Like, would you choose the oil if you knew it wasn't true? I wouldn't. If Jason told me he was God, I'd be like, I love you, dude. I care about you. I'll always be here for you, but I'm not going to choose the oil. John, gets, they try to boil him alive. It didn't kill him. Those of you guys that know church history, what they did was the Roman government was like, okay, this is really frustrating. We're just going to exile this guy to the island of Patmos. He's on that island. He pens the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus. So John is telling us that Jesus' origin, right? The word became flesh, took on flesh. Jesus' origin was in the beginning. And in fact, it was even before the beginning because John tells us he was already there in the beginning, in the beginning was the word. It already existed. So he's, are you following what John's, the picture that he's painting? Okay, a lot of words. Okay, second thing, the coming of the word. John says that God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're going to jump into a little bit of Greek here. I'm not the greatest Greek scholar, um, but I do my best. Wally would probably be better at doing the Greek than me, but here we go. You can, you can criticize me later if my Greek pronunciation is terrible. Uh, the Greek word there translated dwelt, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is the word skeno, okay? And it alludes to the idea of taking up residence in a tent or a tabernacle, okay? Those of you guys that are uh, familiar with the book of Exodus, you, you understand this idea of the tabernacle, right? <clears throat> um, it's basically... Uh, those of you guys that understand tabernacle, you know kind of what John's doing here. You're picking up on the imagery that he's trying to illustrate, but uh, let me give you a little, a little bit of background as quickly as I can on the tabernacle. In the book of Exodus, you guys remember the story of Moses, you know, leading the Israelites out of um, slavery in Egypt, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, all that stuff. That epic story is in the book of Exodus, right? In the book of Exodus, God has the Israelites, these are the people of God, right? He has them build a tabernacle. It's basically like a portable tent, right? But he has them build this tabernacle so that no matter where they went, he could be with them. The tabernacle was where his presence was. And you might be thinking, like, why does he need a tabernacle? Here's the thing. God's holy. Like, he's, he's as pure as you could possibly be. He's holy. He's good. He's righteous. So sinful people and a holy God, they cannot mix. Like, it's literally like two ends of, like the opposite ends of a magnet. You can't bring them together. So you have a holy God, sinful people, all right? The tabernacle, and later on the temple is where God's holy manifest presence was, okay? It was a way for God, for his presence to be with his people without killing them, not because he's bad, but because he's so good and so holy, Are you tracking with this idea? Okay. So John is saying that the word of God, right, tabernacled in a person, and that person is Jesus. This is known as the doctrine of incarnation, the incarnation of God, the word taking flesh in the person of Jesus. Okay, a little more Greek. The Greek word there for word, you know, the word became flesh, describing the second person of the Trinity. It's the word logos, okay? And what logos means is thought, concept, and the expressions thereof. So, God's word, God's logos, 
is the expression of God the Trinity. You tracking me? Okay. And what does it mean to express? To express is to show, to manifest, or to reveal. It basically means to represent, okay? So what John is telling us is that Jesus is the expression of God, the triune God, to his creation, okay? It's God meeting us where we're at in our terms so that we can understand what this finite being, or what this infinite being is with our finite minds, <clears throat> he's saying that God's word came in the person of Jesus to represent God and to show creation what God is like. How many of you guys, um, when you need to contact someone, you make the choice, you choose the text message over the phone call? I can't stand you guys. <laughs> because my phone has like 50 text messages and I can't mark them as unread once I click them and they get lost in the shuffle and it's terrible. One of the things that I hate about text messaging is you can't always read tone. So like, let's say that you text me and you're like, hey, do you want to get together tonight? And I reply, I can't tonight. And you respond with, that's fine, enjoy your evening. (laughs) I'm not going to sleep because I'm literally going to be thinking, oh my gosh, I've offended them, I've hurt them, they're really upset, this is so... uh, I get wigged out because text messages are so hard to read. Email's the same way. You're like, what's the tone in this? It's really hard. Praise God for emoticons. <laughs> yes, yes. Praise God for emoticons. Kev, will you throw that picture up there, bro? The emoticon pictures? You guys, these are emoticons. You guys know what these are, right? Okay. Emoticons are glorious because in that moment, when you text me back, that's fine, enjoy your evening, I'm stressed out. If you text back, that's fine, enjoy your evening, happy face. I am totally stoked. Okay, cool. We're good. We'll set something else up another time. Here's the thing about emoticons. They're so wonderful because they are expressions of emotion that bring clarity, right? Jesus is the expression of God to bring clarity to us. Are you tracking with this idea? Okay. So we have clarity on the three persons of the Trinity. They are God the Father, God the Son, that's, that's God's word, right? His expression, the logos, Jesus. And the third is God the Spirit, okay? Let's talk about how they interact quickly. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter one. I only hear like two pages flipping. That means you guys are all in, hopefully in your app, maybe we'll see. <clears throat> Mark chapter one, we'll have the words on the screen too if you just wanna listen. The reason I'm bringing you here is because Mark chapter one gives us a beautiful picture of how God the Trinity actually operates. Okay? Let's jump in. Mark chapter 1, we're going to read a couple of verses here, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. Again, that's John the Baptist, not the Apostle John. So Jesus is, excuse me, is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Friends, this is really beautiful. It's really beautiful because it shows how poetic God is. Remember, he's an artist. He creates. 
Do you remember in uh, Genesis 1, we see all three persons of the Trinity there, right? Let us. We see all three persons. Here at Jesus' baptism, we see all three persons as well. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And this is actually, I love it because it's an extra appropriate passage for today because we're celebrating baptisms, which I'm pumped about. Um, But here's the thing. When a person gets baptized, what is it? It's It's a public display of how they identify themselves. It's a public display that they identify themselves as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. <clears throat> and honestly, I love baptisms. I, I get fired up about baptisms. It's like one of my favorite things in the world to celebrate. But what we see happening here with Jesus at his baptism is extra special. You see, Jesus' baptism is a public display of his identity as well. Except that Jesus' baptism, he doesn't identify himself as a Christian. He identifies himself as God. <clears throat> now, here's the thing. Like, if you want to see the parallels here between Genesis, or you need to see the parallels. Uh, the, Genesis, the, the, the parallels here between Genesis 1 and what's happening here, <clears throat> right? I want you to see this. You have God the Father. You have God the Son. And notice specifically what the Holy Spirit is doing. What's the Holy Spirit doing here in Mark? What does it say he's doing? Descending and? Think about it. Yeah, the heavens tore up and he descends like a dove. Let's keep moving with this. Here's what I want you to do. In Genesis 1, it says that he was hovering over the water. The Hebrew word here that's translated into hovering, it means to hang in the air, to fly, or to be suspended above. So at Jesus' baptism, we see the Spirit do the same thing. We see him descending on Jesus, hovering over the water of the Jordan River. The author, Mark, he's intentionally bringing us back to Genesis 1. Same picture. He's saying, when you see this, you're seeing what's been happening for all of eternity. We see the Father and the Spirit covering Jesus with love. We're seeing the triune God operating how he has been forever. Each person of the Trinity is overflowing with love for the others. The triune God, a community of three persons, each, listen to me, each of them existing solely for the benefit of the others, not for themselves. Each of them putting the interests of the others over their own. Each one glorifying the other two. This brings me to my final point, the glorifying God. Okay. You've probably heard what, like to glorify something, what does it mean to glorify? To glorify is to praise or to make much of. Okay, here's how this practically plays out, all right? To glorify someone is to serve and love someone, not because you're gonna get something. Like praise is something that leaves me and goes to you. Not for my own benefit, but literally because of you, right? So so to praise, I'm sorry, to glorify is to praise or make much of, It's to serve and love someone, not because you're going to get something, but just because of who they are. Just because of how much they matter to you. Just because they're worthy of praise to you. To glorify someone is to serve and love them without conditions. Like, take just a moment. I know we're talking a lot about scripture. I just want to, like, make it personal for just a minute, okay? Like, in your life, Imagine a person, a man or a woman, 
Imagine a person, imagine that they were totally devoted, exclusively devoted their entire life to glorifying you. Devoted to loving you and serving you. Not to get anything out of it, but just because you mattered that much to them, just because of who you are. Don't think about it for somebody else. Think about it for you. Imagine if there was a person who was devoted to glorifying you. My friend, how would that feel? Like, can you think of something better than that? Friends, that's what God is. A community of three persons, each devoted to glorifying the others. Here's what's crazy. You and I were created in the image of God. Okay, if we were created in the image of God, then who God is and what he's like has huge implications on what we are meant to be like. It gives us insight, honestly, it gives us insight into the meaning of life. Why are we here? Why are we alive? This tells us that God is centered on God. Like, he created us in his likeness, right? To, like him, center our lives on God, because he does. Are you tracking with me? And guess what? He's eternally happy. He's always being glorified. And if we're created in his image, he wants us to be eternally happy. But here's the problem. You're just like me. We seek happiness elsewhere. But true joy is only realized when we live the way we were meant to live. It only happens when we center our lives on God just like he does because we were made in his image. Do you see this? This is really important. But instead, we tend to center our lives on what? Like money? Just give me that cash, that dollar-dollar bills, y'all. Stuff. What I look like what others think about me, my reputation, my comfort. What is it for you? My friend, what do you center your life on? What's the thing in your life that if it's taken away, your life wouldn't be worth living anymore? Like it might even be a good thing that thing that you're centering your life on. It might be a good thing, but it's not meant to be at the center. It's not meant to be worshipped. Enjoyed, absolutely. Worshipped, no. No, the truth is that we're always worshipping something. Like every moment of every day, we're ascribing worth to something. We're centering our lives on something. Something is always the most important thing to us. We worship every moment of every day. So what you are centering your life on, what matters most to you in the moment, that's what you're worshiping. So I'm going to close with this. I'll call the band on up. You guys are hopefully in here still. I'm going to close with this. Um, I always do this. I always mean to bring the book that I'm going to quote from. I think it's in my bag, but I'm not going to walk over there. 
It's on the website. There's this wonderful book on worship. It's one of my favorites. It's called Rhythms of Grace um, by this guy, Mike Cosper. And I want to read you a quote from this book. I actually have two. The first one is this. Mike Cosper says this, quote, we're able to peek through the windows on that love in the Bible where we see the Son worship the Father, the Father adore and exalt the Son, and the Spirit being both celebrated and celebrating the others. The word worship comes from the Old English weoskipe, which combines two words meaning ascribe worth. Listen to this. The Trinity can be said to be always at worship because the three persons of the Godhead perfectly behold the worth and wonder of one another. So, if God is completely satisfied in himself, then why did the word become flesh? Why did God the Son leave a position of eternal happiness? I've heard people say things like, you know, God wanted companionship. He was lonely, you know? Friends, he, 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 already, had, he already had companionship. He wasn't lonely. <clears throat> like, he already had everything. He had God the Father and God the Spirit glorifying him eternally. He had angels around him worshiping him nonstop. They haven't moved on from holy, 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 whoa, holy, eternally. Like he had unconditional love. He had the other two persons of the Trinity existing for his benefit just because of who he was. So why did he come? In John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17, we already read it, it tells us. He said, it says, uh, he came to provide truth and grace. He provided truth by revealing God to his creation. You see that. Right? He's the expression of God, the logos of God. He's providing truth by expressing God to his creation. He's showing creation what God is like. And grace. Friends, grace is not leniency. It's not like overlooking an offense. Grace is costly. Grace is costly and undeserved blessing despite the offense. Say you lose your job. A month goes by. You have some money in savings, so you pay rent. You still don't have a job. One month, another month goes by. You're a month late. Second month goes by. You're a second month, month late on your rent. Third month goes by. You're a third month late on your rent. Leniency would be, hey, I'm not going to kick you out. Pay me when you can. That's kind. I don't know if there's many landlords, period, that would be that kind and generous. That's a generous thing to do. Grace is not leniency. That's lenient. But grace is not leniency. Grace is, hey, I know you're three months behind your rent. Hey, I'll cover it. In fact, the house is yours. That's grace. 
Grace is costly and undeserved blessing despite the offense. So how did Jesus provide grace? The cross. The cross. And my friend, what did he get out of it? Pain? Suffering? Separation from the Father? Like he got nothing. Guys, do you know what that means? That means he glorified you. Jesus came and honored you and served you and lived a perfect life in your place that you never could. And then he died the death that you and I deserve, again, in our place. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has shown you glorifying love. Not because he would get something, but just because of who you are. Friend, do you see the beauty of the cross? Can you see it? It's Jesus inviting you into the pure joy and the unending happiness of having the same relationship with God that he's had for all of eternity. He's inviting you into that community of glorifying love. Do you see this? But the problem is is that we sin, right? We reject him. We do things our own way. I'll have your stuff, but not you. I don't trust him. I'm just as guilty. And our sin, what it does is it separates us from God. It cuts us off from the very thing that our soul desires most, the glorifying love of God. It's what you're thirsty for. But at the cross, Jesus is punished for our sin. And when we trust in that, we're not only forgiven, we're not only having our sins cleansed and washed away, but the cravings of our heart can then be satisfied. Why? Because we get God. We get him. He's the point. He's the remedy. He's given us grace. He's given us what we don't deserve. He's given us himself. I'm going to read you one more quote and I'll get out of your way, okay? One more quote quote from Mike Cosper in Rhythms of Grace. This is a short one. Cosper says this, quote, God's glory and perfection are inexhaustible. We can't say enough about how glorious he truly is. The greatest gift he can give us, listen to this, the greatest gift that he could give us is a revelation of himself. Anything else would be cruel. So God prescribing anything else to be the solution for your happiness would be cruel because nothing comes close to him. Nothing. Nothing's more satisfying. Nothing's more beautiful. Nothing's more lovely. Nothing's more life-giving. We were created to enjoy him forever, to love him and be loved by him forever, to be in perfect relationship, to give and receive glorifying love with the God of the universe. Friends, that's the meaning of life. It's your purpose. It's your primary purpose. Let me pray for us. If you're able, will you stand with me?
God, there is nothing more romantic than your love for us. Nothing more romantic than your love for us. I know there are ladies in this room that want to be romanced. It's not an accident that they desire that. There are men who want to feel validated, who want to feel like they're worth something more than what they do. It's not an accident. There's nothing more romantic than your love for us, God. So Father, I pray for each heart in this room, mine included, that you would show us the depths of your love for us, that this incarnation is not just like a theological doctrine that's like cool, but like it's a reality. The word became flesh. God glorified me. That's crazy. So Spirit, would you give us um, eyes to see you, to hear you, and would you enlighten us to the reality of the love of God for us? Thank you. We can't earn it but you freely give it. It's grace. Grace and grace and grace. I love you, Jesus. Amen. Before we jump into praise and responding to the love of God, I just want to tell you, like, imagine, right? Imagine what it would be like to have someone completely devoted to glorifying you. Friend, it's not a fantasy. It's a reality, and the cross is proof. Proof. 